Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. I'm Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call Lanya. That's Creole for something extra. It took Barbara Streisand 10 years to write her memoir, and at nearly 1,000 pages, she's penned a page-turner of a book. The singer, actress, director, and activist narrates her story in the simply titled, My Name is Barbara. The memoir is filled with the -the behind-the-scenes detail archivists can finally document and fans have long craved. A book as big as this about a singular talent as big as Barbara Streisand demands the insider perspective of people who have long followed her career and life. We are fortunate to have two on board for our discussion. Joining me now, Garrett Stewart, professor of literature and cinema at the University of Iowa and author of Streisand, The Mirror of Difference, who joins me from Iowa City, Iowa. Welcome, Garrett. Good to be here. Also with me, Matt Howe, founder of Barbara Archives, a Barbara Streisand fan website and author of Barbara Streisand, The Music, who joins me from Asheville, North Carolina. Hello, Matt. How are you? Thank you. Thanks for having me. Oh, I'm delighted to have the two of you. Uh, so let me start this way. I'm a longtime admirer. It's clear that uh, the two of you are as well. Before we dive into the details of the memoir, I just want to get a quick reaction from both of you about the book itself. Was it a good read? Did you feel, how did you feel after uh, reading it, Garrett? I'll start with you. I, I read it first, and then I've actually listened while walking in the neighborhood to all 48 hours of its mesmerizing audiobook that Streisand took the trouble to read herself. So I'm, I'm saturated in it and fascinated by it and struck by the fact that everyone else seems to be. It's getting the best reviews almost of her career. People all seem to see that there's something amazingly authentic and insightful about it. All right, Matt. Yeah, I I listened to the audiobook and then read along with it at the same time. And um I think it took me probably five days. Uh even though the, the audiobook is only 48 hours long, you know, you can't listen to it all day long. Or <laughs> at least I can. <laughs> but I, I really enjoyed it. I, I felt like as a longtime fan, she kind of gave me everything I was looking for in this memoir that she's been talking about for 10 years. So I'm uh I've been uh, dipping my toe back in, getting ready for this, but um, it's a lot of book. It is a lot of book, but I felt that it flew by even at 992 pages. Uh, Just so my listeners are clear about what it covers, it's really her growing up in Brooklyn. She got her big breakout role in Funny Girl, and, um, and then she, throughout the book, really gives you the juicy behind the deals scenes details of what was happening on each of her pivotal projects and even some of the ones I was unaware of. Um, she really uh, lays it out exactly what was happening. I totally appreciate the fact that she names names when the people were mean, she said they were mean and how they were mean. <laughs> and 
she's very frank about her own uh, failings uh, in the book. So if you, to me, it's it's the best uh, a memoir could be because she's uh, pretty honest about it and you get a lot of detail that you didn't have before. So now let's dive in more specifically. Garrett, uh, your whole thing has been paying attention to her voice and her singing and her artistry as a singer. But you've said it's not just about her art artistry, but about the fact that she's a cultural phenomenon. Talk a little bit about that before we talk about specific songs. She is a kind of international, or as the New Yorker review of the memoir put it, a galactic phenomenon. It has her and ethnic uh, overtones, her fame, that that obviously reach out to a kind of international curiosity about it. Uh, so there is a huge cultural weight on her shoulders that she bears with unusual candor and dignity in, in the memoir. And you are very careful to describe her as an actress who sings, which is the same way she describes herself. Now, what difference does that make? Please explain. She explains wonderfully and in more detail even than I had seen before about how her frustrations uh, about getting even into off-Broadway roles uh, were translated to her first singing club dates in Greenwich Village, where she would uh, she would perform these of performing the notes extemporaneously in a way she hadn't planned. Once in front of the microphone, she got into the role of the different persona that she was playing. So the the memoir is fascinating on uh, her her vocal intuition about what would would project character in a given song. Here's Barbara uh, singing uh, one of the pieces that you pointed out to us, Garrett, uh, A Sleeping Bee, recorded live in Greenwich Village in 1962. Sleep on me, don't wake up, cannot believe what just That's some power. <laughs> I just want to point out that this is 1962. She is quite young. The, her voice is amazing. Um, and Matt, I'm going over to you because uh, not only has Garrett made the point that she is an actress who sings, but she really didn't think that singing was going to be her life. She wanted to be the actress. And this was just, as Garrett has uh pointed to something she did just to eat. <laughs> I mean, who could be so multi-talented, right? <laughs> well, I think she always <laughs> felt like her voice got more attention than her acting. I think it's been a frustration her whole life, including when she gets into the movies and then she's like, why do I have to be a singing prostitute in the Owl and the Pussycat? <laughs> Can I just be a prostitute? <laughs> Can I just play that role and not have to sing for my supper? So it's it's been a frustration, but um, I think as she's gotten older and as she writes in the book over the years, she's become more appreciative of her God-given gift. And um, she took it uh, for granted over the years. She really can just open her mouth 
and sound uh, just lovely in the recording studio. And I'm thinking later years she does vocal warmups, but you know, she's just a God-given talent who can sing like a bird. Um, and you brought something else up that she mentioned in the in the memoir. She never did vocal exercises. All the other people were doing la 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 la, whatever, whatever. She never did any of that. She, she just, as you said, just open her she mouth. She said it. They they bore her. And you know, I I I want to wring the neck of a lot of interviewers because they all ask her, "Do you sing in the shower?" And she's answered that question for years. She does not sing in the shower. She does not do vocal warm-ups. And she says that these days, if she's you know driving to a studio to record, she does have a tape that Tony Bennett gave her that does have a vocal warm-up. Um, but, you know, she is a natural talent, too. Well, uh, one of the, the part of the excitement for me in talking to you is that you know absolutely everything about her. You built this website 20 years ago. Um, and now I want to emphasize for my listeners her people call you for to make sure that something is correct. That's how detailed you've been about covering her life. Yeah, yeah. It's. I mean, I can't tell you what a thrill it is. I mean, Barbara's my favorite artist ever, and and here I am because of this website, uh, meeting her, interacting with her team, helping out with projects, and it's just a weird, quirky thing that I have. I have like this you know, photographic memory. And if they ask for a certain photo or something or a date or a list, then I can usually, you know, give it out to them. So I, I'm glad to be of help. Um, and you've had a chance to meet her, just to put that on the record. Oh, well. yeah. S- several times. She's she's lovely. Always nice to me. And um, her eyes are as blue as they are in What's Up, Doc? All right. Um, Now, to both of you, uh, what was surprising? um, Because, as I said, both of you are intimately uh, familiar with her work uh, uh, on your part, Garrett, and Matt, so much of her life. Uh, So, Garrett, what surprised you in the book? Many, many things both surprised me uh, and confirmed interest I had had in different song treatments or film scenes she she was thinking as hard uh, about them in producing them as I was in as a critic in interpreting and evaluating them so I was in many ways confirmed uh surprised by m- many things that guilty her most famous album's title song wasn't even there uh in the original Barry Gibb uh, tracks and she suggested a, something with a little bit more bossa nova beat, a little bit more upbeat, and it became this this magic hit for her. Uh, but I, back to a Sleeping Bee, which you played, uh, I was surprised how exact she was about the moment uh, on the line, "My one true love," uh, at the end, where she says, "I just instinctively the octave." She lifts the note a whole octave to produce that that levitation at the end, the lifting by love itself. So it was those moments that surprised me uh, uh, regarding her her interest in, and then confirmed my sense of what the artistry was all about. 
Matt, I want to get your response and I'm going to play a little bit more music. Uh, what surprised you? Because you know a lot. Yeah, <laughs> in the yeah. and I was, I was hoping <laughs> to be surprised, and I was. So thank you, Barbara, for, as she said, um, her editor said to leave a little blood on the page. I think she did. So I think um, there's three things. Um, she quotes from a book that I am sort of familiar with, but I'm surprised had such an effect on her life. It's the four agreements and the agreement that she mentions all through her life, all through the book is never assume, which I think is a great rule for life, but it's a lesson that she learned several times the hard way and, and writes, writes about in the book. Um, I think also how vulnerable she is. She writes several times, several instances, reviews, people, you know, breakups, movies, executives. She writes about how that hurt me. And I, I feel bad for her. I think she got hurt, you know, over her life several times. She she bounced back, but I think she got hurt. And then the last one was the affair with Peter Matz. What? <laughs> Spo spoiler alert, if you haven't read it, sorry. <laughs> but Peter Matz, my gosh. He's the he is, of course, was her conductor arranger for many years, and his big work was with her on the Broadway album and her first few albums, but uh she had an affair with him. Ooh, juicy. Yeah. Uh, she put all her boyfriends, ex-boyfriends <laughs> yeah. in there, and I loved it personally. <laughs> so it was really good. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and here with me are Garrett Stewart, professor of literature and cinema at the University of Iowa, and author of Streisand, The Mirror of Difference, and Matt Howe, founder of Barbara Archives, a Barbara Streisand fan website and author of Barbara Streisand, The Music. We're doing a deep dive into Streisand's new memoir, My Name is Barbara. Now, I want to play a clip from the 1968 film Funny Girl. She was incredibly young, first of all, when she starred in this, because there's a point I want to make about the scene on the other side. So let's take a listen. Uh, about that song, I mean, a song, you know, it's a very, very intimate thing. I mean, it's it's really between me and the um, audience. <laughs> so? So, um, <clears throat> one of the things I really feel definite about is choosing my own. Choosing your own what? Songs, songs. <laughs> so she's speaking to uh, the actor playing... Uh, uh, Ziegfeld in that scene. Uh, she's starring as Fanny Bryce, the great comedian. Um, and her point was, I want to choose my own songs. That's how I know what's going on. And uh, to both of you, you know that she has been incredibly insistent on having control of the product. And in a lot of spaces in the book, we learn that had she not had it, uh, the projects would have been wildly different and probably not successful. But that was more important to her than anything else. I'll just uh, quote from the book. She says, My dear devoted Marty, who always thought about what was best for me rather than what would make him the most commissioned, had negotiated an unprecedented contract for a first-timer. This is about her first album for Columbia. In exchange for less money up front, I got creative control, which was more important to me than anything else. I was just a small person, a pishika, as they say in Yiddish, but I was adamant about this. It meant I got to choose the songs I sang, and if I didn't like the way an album turned out, I could can it. The concept and the responsibility were all mine. So, Matt, talk about uh, that as a thread through all of this, all of her work. 
her insistent, whatever she could get it, of controlling the end product. Barbara's well known for her um, her vision. I mean, she made a, an album of songs for movies called The Movie Album, but then hardly sang any songs that anybody knew. And it's like, well, those are Barbara's choices. And, you know, love it or leave it. It's, it's, she put it out there. It's for you to listen to or not. And uh, Garrett, what that means, though, then, when she uh, approaches the way that she's going to sing a song is, is everything, because she gets to change it uh, as she goes along. And as we've learned throughout the book, listen, she told Stephen Sondheim he was going to have to change some lyrics. That's pretty amazing. Uh, I think she she requested it and was delighted that he agreed. But yes, your your point is is well taken. She she just couldn't rest easy if she thought it could be better. And it's a very heartening through line in in the read. Uh, this this control that she got legally at the beginning and then fought for uh, along the way. She's been a director at heart. I mean, I think she realized that as she was going over her work. By the way, uh, she's made clear that she never goes over past work. She That's it. But to do this book, she had to go back and listen and watch um, so that she could be appropriate in her response and also look for other responses that were um, happening at the time. Let's listen to uh, her version of her version, her only, the only version that matters. This is Barbara singing Evergreen from A Star is Born. That is a good version. <laughs> you think? <laughs> uh, and she wrote that. So we need to make clear we say that. She can certainly hold a note. Oh, my God. Garrett, what's the octave thing, the octave range? Because that's been spoken about. It's uh, usually people call it a three octave range. And uh, it's interesting that she begins with the humming notes uh, at the peak of the, the range, then lowers it into the the lyric and moves up to the the high note again with the climactic lines about time. Wow. Which I, think I was quite interested in the memoir, her, her passion for words that go two ways, uh, two different ways in a lyric, or even sometimes two ways at once. She would send her, her co-writers, you know, wing that they could, uh, 
could find another kind of subtle ambiguity in the in the lyric uh she had written with uh the the co-writers of evergreen uh uh a song for a star is born called answer me and she got them to come up with a way of the the title answer me having a new meaning at the end answer me when you wake up with your eyes and then at the end hope one day you'll say you had a lover and or when asked if you had a lover you will answer me uh that kind of thing appealed to her and it appeals to i think her her fans in in evergreen the way time is the object that we can rise above uh until time becomes the subject uh of the next phrase that time can't change the meaning of that thing is instinctual with the actress in her and she finds a way of making it musical in in often quite inspired ways and matt it should be uh emphasized she wasn't obnoxious as she was working with you, you working with uh, her co-writers or other folks uh, um some of the composers she really got into it uh, and wanted them to to hear what she was saying about what seemed to make sense from a storytelling perspective. There again is the director in her. As we know, she went on to direct Yentl. That was a big deal. Um, and then Prince of Tides and, you know, got plenty of accolades for both. But the director in her just sees more broadly than her own role, even if her own role is at the center of it, Matt. Well, she would probably say that um, that old expression, God is in the details, and she loves the details. And I think the people who don't get along with her um, don't enjoy digging into that kind of work. Now, Marvin Hamlish loved it. You know, he gave her three different orchestrations of people for her tour in the concert in 1994. And um, for the way we were when they went in to record it, he wrote three different uh, keys and changes because he knew that she would ask for it. So she loves Marvin Hamlish. <laughs> she loves, you know, people like Stephen Sondheim, who will take a look at, like uh, Garrett was saying, the lyrics of Sin and the Clowns that he wrote back in the 70s and say, oh, yeah, that bridge doesn't quite work when the actors aren't standing on stage. So maybe I'll write a new bridge, uh, a different bridge, and this will be the Streisand version. And uh, I think that if, if you like attention to those details and you care about the work and you, I think Barbara also has her eye on the prize. She knows that this recording and this movie and this television show will last forever. Mm -hmm. And let's get it right. Mm -hmm. What do you want uh, uh, folks to take away? That's a question I usually ask my authors uh, when I interview them about their books. But um, I'd like to hear from you two uh, what you would hope that uh, the readers of her memoir would take away. You who have very specialized knowledge of of Barbara's life and career. I'll start with you, Garrett. I, I guess it's all the truisms and myth the book debunks. I mean, a lot of them one could see through to begin with. Uh, she was obviously not the kind of egomaniacal diva that that people have accused her of being. She shies away from uh, from personal appearances. She is in, isn't interested in fame. It frightened her from the beginning in the kind of crowd adulation. Her perfectionism is self-justifying. Those are easy. Uh, aloofness, she's actually, it's so clear how socially shy she is. Uh, 
the idea of her being a fashion plate. Uh, she actually hates fashion shoots. A lot of the the more stagey album covers were just thrown together in her own, you know, her own den uh, with a, a photographer on hand. Uh, so much of it is getting past the publicity to the work, which she keeps stressing is is what she values. You might have thought the overstaged, uh, overplayed stage fright was exaggeration, but it's very clear in in many ways how how traumatized she was by heckling on stage in Funny Girl by her her uh, co-star and later by really clinical anxieties before concerts. Uh, when you read the memoir and you see that it, it's the, the absence of any maternal affection, that extremely difficult mother uh, who gave her nothing and how Stresson just felt unseen by a, an absent father, an unfeeling mother and a cruel stepfather, you, you get why she wanted to be seen so much and then can only appreciate how careful she was that what she made visible to the world was so extraordinary. Hmm. And for you, Matt, what do you want readers to take away? I think a lot of casual readers that aren't super crazy fans like Garrett and I are, I think they think that Barbara's a bad person, a mean person, a diva, which is a word she doesn't like. And I think when you read the book, it's really surprising how down to earth she is. I mean, I think of passages, I mean, I, I can't tell you what page it's on, but like, you know, she talks about riding a horse for the first time. Am I going to fall off? Am I going to die? She talks about getting in the ocean, you know, and she just has these normal, natural fears that we all have when we do things outside of our comfort zones. And she spent her life doing things outside of her comfort zone. I mean, she was a true superstar who had to deal with the press. I mean, God forbid she was a star today with the crazy paparazzi and the chasing through tunnels and stuff. I mean, it's just nuts. But she weathered all of that. And she ended up, you know, a very nice person with a very nice marriage to James Brolin. And um, she's sort of like a Bubby Barbara right now, looking back on her life, reflecting on uh, the very amazing life she's led. Um I think she's a, a nice Jewish girl. <laughs> um, and I would uh, like to quote something toward the end of the book when she says, at this point in my life, I want to step out of the spotlight at least for a while. Looking back, it was much more fun to dream of being famous than to actually be famous. Yeah. So that, that touched me. There's a lot of, in the book that, that touched me a lot about uh, her life. It's a fantastic book. Um, I am so grateful to the two of you who who um, were able to join me to talk about it, um, and I encourage everybody to read it because, wow, what a talent, what a cultural phenomenon, as Garrett has said. All of that um, is important. And an activist, too, by the way. she's There's a good bit of that in the book as well. So thank you, too, uh, for joining me. Thank you, Callie. That was fun. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yes, entirely a pleasure. Thank you. Garrett Stewart is the professor of literature and cinema at the University of Iowa and author of Streisand, The Mirror of Difference. And Matt Howe, founder of the Barbara Archives, a Barbara Streisand fan website, and author of Barbara Streisand, The Music. Uh, both of them are 
fabulous guests, I'll just add. Thank you. <laughs> That's it for this week's edition of Under the Radar. Listen to us online at GBH News or wherever you get your podcasts. And follow us on Twitter and Facebook to stay up to date with our programming. Under the Radar with Callie Crossley is a production of GBH, produced by Jesse Steinmetz and engineered by Dave Goodman. We're going out on Barbara singing the way we were. Listen again on Wednesday and see you here at 6 p.m. next Sunday for a new episode. I'm Callie Crossley. Thanks for listening. Sure.